And most sex is not reproductive, you know? The biggest reason we have sex is for pleasure. Welcome to the Sensuality Academy podcast, where I share tangible techniques to help you embody your femininity, enhance your sex life, and elevate your relationships. I'm your host, Eleanor Hadley, sensuality coach and founder of Sensual Yoga. Now, let's unleash your inner sensualista. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sensuality Academy podcast. I have always been so wildly passionate about empowering people to love their bodies as they are, especially women and vulva owners. We know how toxic our society can be when it comes to unrealistic beauty standards and the expectations that are placed on women to meet an ever-changing goalpost of perceived perfection. So pervasive is the cultural addiction of profiting off women's insecurities, which are mostly manufactured quite intentionally, that it seems no part of our body is spared scrutiny. Today we're talking all things vulva, labia, and particularly the clitoris. Yep, even our most sensitive organs come under criticism, because of course they do. I will never cease to be exhausted by systems of patriarchy. Did you know that labiaplasty has been the fastest growing medical procedure for the past two decades? We'll be diving into this topic deeply with our guest today, but for those of you who may not have heard the term before, I know I only came across it within the past couple of years. A labiaplasty is a surgical procedure which reduces the length of the labia minora, the inner ellipse of the vulva. Sometimes labiaplasty is performed for legitimate medical reasons due to things like discomfort. However, the rise in popularity of labiaplasty can be attributed to plastic surgeons spruiking what they call vaginal rejuvenations while claiming that protruding labia minora is unfeminine and due to an excess in male hormones or even excessive masturbation or sexual activity, all of which is absolutely untrue. In today's episode, we're going to explore the medical misogyny and the ambivalence of medical institutions when it comes to vulvar anatomy, specifically the absence of detailed clitoral anatomy in medical literature. That's right, detailed clitoral anatomy has been straight up missing from most medical textbooks, despite the abundance of surgeons performing procedures on vulva owners. Our guest today is Jessica Pinn, an activist for inclusion of detailed clitoral anatomy in medical literature and curricula. She's been successful in convincing nine major medical textbooks to update their content, and 11 more to consider updates. She's also published a cadaveric study with plastic surgeons, convinced OBGYNs to publish a cadaveric study and affected changes in the OBGYN board certification and residency curricula in the States. As she shares with us in this episode, she was inspired to do this after her own botched labiaplasty, which robbed her of clitoral sensation at the age of 18. After her surgery, she taught herself the course of the dorsal nerves in the clitoris and she realized that it was missing from obstetric and gynecological literature and any literature on female genital cosmetic surgery. She holds a degree in biomedical engineering from Washington University in St. Louis. This chat with Jessica today was at once fascinating and deeply infuriating. 
I think many of us who identify as women have had personal experiences of our own of medical misogyny. And it's so heartbreaking to hear how deep this runs and how little time and thought has been given to vulva owners, particularly in regards to our experience of sexual pleasure. Jessica is doing such important work, and I hope that you enjoy listening to this episode. And for anyone listening who may have been considering labiaplasty, I hope that this episode provides you with a new perspective. This is not to convince you otherwise, but rather to offer you an insight. If you or anyone you know, be it friends, family, or lovers, have had some shame or discomfort around your vulva, I highly recommend checking out my friend's website, www.comfortableinmyskin.com.au. Ellie is a dear friend and a vulva photographer with an online gallery called Flip Through My Flaps. And this is a gallery of hundreds of vulvas that she's photographed. It's a really great way to see the diversity of vulvas and to potentially see that yours is, in fact, completely normal. I hope that you enjoy this episode. And if you do, I would love your support by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much. And now enjoy the episode. Here's Jessica. All right. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming to the Sensuality Academy podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. So today we're talking all about the clitoris, labiaplasty, and the absence of detailed clitoral anatomy in medical literature. So I would love to start off by just hearing a little bit more about your story and what got you into this work. So basically, I had a labiaplasty when I was barely 18. And my doctor completely amputated my labia minora and performed a clitoral hood reduction without my consent. In the clitoral hood reduction, he damaged my clitoris and I lost sensation. And after my surgery, I went to doctors and I told them that I had lost sensation and they told me that wasn't possible. So I ended up teaching myself the anatomy and I ended up realizing that it wasn't getting taught to OBGYNs or plastic surgeons who operate on vulvas. And so I've been trying to change their training so that they know the anatomy better and so that they're safer in surgery and also so that they don't gaslight patients who are harmed. Because one of the hardest things I dealt with was getting told it was all in my head. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. It's horrifying what happened to you and I know that this is something that a lot of other women have been through as well a lot of other vulva owners with the rise in labiaplasty so for those of my listeners who might not know what a labiaplasty is would you be able to explore that a little bit more yeah so a labiaplasty is a surgery that reduces the size of the labia minora the labia minora are the inner lips of the vulva it is the fastest growing cosmetic procedure. It has been for, I think, about two decades now. Um, it is extremely common, especially among young women. And while my story sounds a bit crazy, I hear from other women similar stories. I've been hearing more and more of them as I get more popular. And it is really shocking what goes on. And it is extremely difficult to sue in these cases. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of feedback or justice when things go wrong. A lot of surgeons are really just operating blind and without adequate training. 
Yeah, it's it's ridiculous that um, like I've been watching and reading a lot of your content and your story and what you're advocating for. And it's just mind blowing that so many people who are actually performing labiaplasties don't actually have the proper medical training. And we're going to get into that. But first of all, I want to ask, why do you think labiaplasty is growing so much? You said it's the most popular um, surgery that is kind of growing in the past two decades. What do you think is contributing to that? So I see it as the exploitation of an ignorance. And I see the demand for labiaplasty as acting as somewhat of a positive feedback system, because basically the doctors create the demand and there's not much to cancel that out because it's such a taboo topic. And so the way I see it, doctors are advertising these surgeries aggressively. One of my friends got an advertisement on her Facebook that said, like a haircut for your genitals. Oh my God. Personally, I think that the reason demand for these surgeries is growing is because there is a lot of money to be made. And so more and more surgeons want to be making that money. And so they're advertising these surgeries and they are often advertising them with misinformation. Um, And so through the proliferation of that misinformation, women become more insecure about their vulvas and seek these procedures. That is at least my opinion. So for example, they call these procedures rejuvenation. That is very misleading because no positive correlation between age and labia minora size after puberty has ever been shown. They actually decrease in size with menopause and decreasing estrogen levels. Um, However, when they say that, when they call it rejuvenation, it implies that large labia minora, quote unquote, look old. And so a lot of women get the impression that they look old and they look ugly based on that misinformation. They also say that they're caused by excess androgens. That's another claim that has never been proven. It comes from a hypothesis made in a case study, but it has been claimed at least 50 times in medical literature and like major medical journals and in medical textbooks. So in my opinion, when this misinformation gets more and more common, it gets taken for granted as fact and it gets disseminated among the lay population. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of women who said that they were influenced by claims like largely women are caused by aging, excess androgens, which are male hormones, and also sexual activity and masturbation. That's another thing that gets said, and it's not supported by any evidence, but it has a function of stigmatizing labia minora. And when doctors are participating in spreading this misinformation, you know, these claims gain credibility and they influence women's feelings about their bodies and their decisions to seek surgery. Um, So I have kind of a different perspective because I don't think it has anything to do with like waxing or porn or anything like that. Um, I think that it stems a lot from stigma around vulvas in general and stigma around female sexuality in general. Um, And I see that, like, basically I see societal taboo around vulvas getting exploited for profit. And I think that's what this fundamentally is about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just, I guess, the fact that we don't talk about vulvas nearly as much as we talk about penises. Um, It's just, 
I, I think I actually read something that you wrote about how in medical textbooks, penises were talked about so much more than the clitoris or the vulva. And it's just not as common, which is kind of ridiculous because we need the same um, or, yeah, we, we need the same level of care for and understanding of our genitals as, you know, people with penises do. Yeah, definitely. So detailed penile anatomy is always covered, right? So the course of nerves and vessels in the penis is always shown and described in anatomy textbooks. And they typically show a cross-section with the internal structure, and they go into very in-depth descriptions. But with the clitoris that typically is not covered, how much gets covered really varies. So sometimes they will just completely leave out the nerves and vessels in the clitoris, which is crazy because the nerves in the clitoris are actually just as large as the nerves in the penis, and they are extremely important to female sexual function. But they get left out. Sometimes they get left out because... Doctors and anatomists are genuinely ignorant, and sometimes they get left out intentionally. So, for example, with Gray's surgical anatomy, detailed anatomy of the clitoris was omitted intentionally. About 50 times as many words were devoted to describing the penis as the clitoris, and they didn't show any detail for the clitoris. And the chief editor defended that on Twitter. How? How do you defend that? Some male urologists came to his defense, which was really nuts because it's like they pretty much treat penises for a living. And you would think that, you know, (laughs) given how much they know about penises, they would understand the like the clitoris, which is the female homologue, is similarly important. So that's something that I've been working on getting changed. Basically, I get textbooks to update their content. Until 2019, the course of nerves in the clitoris was not in any OBGYN textbooks. And so I've gotten three major OBGYN textbooks updated. And I've also uh, gotten a number of other textbooks in OBGYN, urology, plastic surgery, and general anatomy to agree to update their content. Some of the biggest wins are more Grant and Netter, because those are really major anatomy textbooks used in medical training, and they have already created new illustrations. So like they are going to be showing basically equivalent anatomy for the clitoris is for the penis, which is awesome. Yeah, that's so fabulous. I mean, it's it's such an incredible task that you are doing. I can imagine that it's been very difficult the entire journey, let alone trying to convince textbooks um, and yeah, the publishers to actually include something that seems like to me just seems obvious. Like, of course, that should be in there as part of our body. And I think I, I remember you saying something that along the lines of the nerves of the clitoris are the only major nerves in the human body that are not considered worth teaching. Why do you think that is? <laughs> because I guess, well, so the clitoris is not seen as having any direct reproductive role. And so you know, it, its function is not considered as important as other functions. So there's that element, mm-hmm. you know, like I actually had a female orthopedic surgeon argue that it wasn't important enough to include in general anatomy textbooks. And that was kind of crazy because oh. it's like, hey, can't you care about your own body? You know, what about pleasure? Like, why are we just so dismissive of pleasure? Basically, People just don't think that pleasure is as important as reproductive function or other functions. 
which is kind of crazy because in reality, pleasure is so important. And most sex is not reproductive. You know, the biggest reason we have sex is for pleasure. So yeah, that particular function is extremely important. And in a roundabout way, it feels like the the medical industry omitting clitoral anatomy and not recognizing that pleasure is important. It's kind of this roundabout way of saying, well, your only purpose is to reproduce. You don't, you're not worth feeling exactly. pleasure. But, oh, yes, penis is, yes, like they get, they experience amazing pleasure and orgasm. And we want to make sure that they experience that. I think actually I read something else that you wrote about on consent forms um, for pelvic surgery that there was uh, noting about the pot- potential side effects for penis owners as opposed to no side effects or no information for any side effects of the clitoris or the vulva. Yeah, so basically my dad, it was actually my dad's idea. My dad's kind of awesome. Uh, he brought home all the consent forms for pelvic surgeries that they had at the hospital where he works. And so it was just this whole stack of pelvic surgery consent forms. And, you know, he showed me that they did not discuss risk to female sexual function. They always discuss risk to male sexual function. And that was, that was in around like 2013. So it may have changed, but there is that general pattern and you can see it in the way that, female bodies are approached versus male bodies. Female sexual function is basically an afterthought in medicine. There's no specialty that's really considered responsible for it. Like generally it falls under OBGYNs, but the OBGYNs tend to feel like it's not really their responsibility because they're focused on reproduction. And so a lot of the time female sexual function will get discussed in a chapter on emotional issues in in OBGYN textbooks. And it will be sandwiched between domestic violence and eating disorders. And it tends to be approached as an issue of psychology and hormones. And this, you know, a lot of the time people like to blame men for these problems. But I promise it's not just men behind this. There's a lot of women behind this pattern. For example, the author of a, an article on UpToDate. So UpToDate is supposed to keep doctors up to date and the... It, <laughs> Basically, it's a clinical decision support resource for doctors. And even my dad thinks it's up to date. He's like, you know, I was talking to him about some medical issue recently. And he was like, oh, let me check up to date. I'm like, dad, up to date is bullshit. But it may not be with other subjects. However, with female sexual dysfunction, it is extremely out of date, in my opinion, because it neglects, I mean, it pretty much neglects the clitoris. So there's this whole article on the evaluation and management of female sexual dysfunction, and they mention relationship 26 times, and they mention clitoris one time. All they say is you can put massage oil on the clitoris. I'm like, wow, God, if it was that simple, do you think we'd be going to the doctor? I don't know. But, But what's funny is the author of that article is a woman. She's a female uh, OBGYN professor at Harvard Medical School. I mean, that's just screaming internalized misogyny to me. I think that it, it's really sad, I suppose, when we see women who are in fields that are meant to be championing empowerment of women just not really caring 
that much and having this intense internalized misogyny. Um, I know you've spoken a lot about some very famous plastic surgeons in the US who seem to be just bankrolling from supporting labioplasties and trying to convince people to, to have them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's very complicated and I hesitate to say people don't care and I hesitate to even call it internalized misogyny because it's not like it's not like they don't think it's important, but they're just not thinking about it right. And it's really strange. Like people, including women, will tend to approach female sexual function as something that occurs above the waist. And there's just that pattern. And, you know, even when pharmaceutical companies went to create a female Viagra, they created a drug that works on our brains, not our genitals. And I don't know exactly how that came about, but it seems, you know, a little funny because it's just so typical. And another example is there's a major urogynecology textbook. It's, I think it's just Walter's urogynecology. And in it, there's a whole chapter on female sexual function and dysfunction, which is a big deal that they devoted a whole chapter to it. And the chapter is written by women. It's written by a female urogynecologist and a female psychologist. And in the chapter, they mention the clitoris only one time. And I forget how many words the chapter is, but it's like a generous chapter. They mention the clitoris only once, and all they say is it engorges. And it's just bizarre because, you know, one thing that I say is the clitoris is the only organ whose anatomy and physiology is considered irrelevant to its function. I mean, it's like, imagine going to a pulmonologist, you know, because you have breathing problems and having them just be like, oh, do you think you're stressed? You know, imagine them not even considering what could be wrong with your lungs. And, and I've even had OBGYNs say clitoral anatomy isn't relevant to treating female sexual dysfunction because female sexual dysfunction is caused by low libido. And it's strange because I'm like, what do you think causes low libido? Because I would suspect that, you know, it, if a woman had any sort of issue with her clitoris, you know, maybe she wouldn't want sex very much, you know, because it wouldn't be fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that our, yeah, sexual, our female sexuality is very nuanced and there are a lot of factors at play, but of course the actual physical anatomy should not be overlooked. It seems quite ridiculous. Yeah, I don't want to discount psychological factors. But yeah, there is this dichotomy in the way male and female sexual function are approached in that female sexual function is considered a psychological issue and male sexual function is considered very much a physiological issue. So if you look at literature on male sexual function and dysfunction, it's all very much like how the penis works. And it's almost to the point of excluding their very real and valid psychological issues that may impact men, you know, because they're just like, you know, you know, they just go into detailed anatomy and physiology and biomechanics, and it's all very analytical. That's such an interesting view. I really, really appreciate that point that, yeah, it's not necessarily about them not caring and, and pure misogyny, um, but just maybe a lack of awareness and a lack of scope of like, okay, let's look at this from every angle. And so I want to ask you about more about the actual clitoris itself, because um, something that you wrote recently, you were talking about how 
often we have this uh, fact kind of thrown around in in sexology and sex education about how there are 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris, but you've been saying that that's actually not not quite right. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, from what I can tell, it comes from a study of cows. So I always like to know where claims come from. Like I, you know, place a lot of value on evidence and proof. So I dug into where that claim came from and I traced it back to this book called The Clitoris by Thomas Lowry. It was published in 1976. It talks about a study of bovine genitals. They also studied sheep. (laughs) So both sheep and cows have double the nerve endings in their clitorises as their male counterparts. What they did is they counted the nerve fibers in the dorsal nerves of the clitoris and the penis. So they didn't actually count the nerve endings. They counted the axons, basically, that lead to the nerve endings. It's so interesting. That has not been done on humans. And so (laughs) I get sort of exasperated because it's just like one of those things that's just sort of lazy and careless science, in my opinion. And I think that claims about humans should be based on studies of humans. Yeah. I mean, how it surely isn't that difficult um, to actually do that study on humans instead of animals. Like, sure, there's some similarities, but it would be great to actually know. And so are you saying that we don't actually know how many nerve endings are in the human clitoris? Well, there was one study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine that looked at nerve density in the clitoral glands versus the penile gland. I did not like the results, so I'm not really interested in repeating that study. Okay, gotcha. I'm sort of (laughs) kidding, but basically it would imply that the clitoral glands has less nerve endings than the penile glands. I am not sure about that. So one thing is I've dissected the dorsal nerves of the clitoris and they are quite large. And I have not dissected the dorsal nerves of the penis, but I did look up a study where they measured the dorsal nerves of the penis. And it really seems like the dorsal nerves in the clitoris are just as large. And I also discussed this with some anatomists, basically with the chief editors of Moore and Grant's anatomy. I talked to them about this and they agreed the nerves in the clitoris are about the same size. They've dissected both. And a gender reassignment surgeon told me he thinks the nerves in the clitoris are actually bigger. So who knows how big they are, but they're definitely quite large. And in theory, the diameter of the nerve would be proportional to the number of nerve endings that it leads to, right? Yeah, definitely. So can you tell us a little bit more about the the nerves that we do know are involved in the clitoris? Um, I also know um, from my own sort of study that the, well, the, the structure, I suppose, of the penis and the clitoris are, are quite similar. Essentially, our genitals are all the same, but just organized differently. And yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about those nerves and, and how they play a part in our sexual function. Okay, so both the penis and the clitoris have two main dorsal nerves that travel either on the top of the clitoral body or the top of the penile shaft. Those are homologous structures that are both made of corpora cavernosa, which is erectile tissue. And so the nerves travel on the tops of those structures and lead to the glands. And the glands is the most sensitive part. So in my study, the nerves were 
3.2 mil millimeters in diameter at the angle of the clitoral body, which is sort of like, you could maybe conceptualize that sort of as the base of the clitoral body, like before it becomes external under the hood. And then they were two millimeters in diameter towards the glands, like within a couple millimeters of the glands on average, which is where they begin to spread out, you know, they branch off so much that you can no longer dissect them. So I've, I've done the math before and I forget, but what that implies is about half of the nerve endings go to the glands and about half of the nerve endings, you know, lead to other things on the way to the glands. But the glands definitely has the greatest nerve density. And I suspect it works about the same in the penis. I know that the dorsal nerves of the penis have more visible branching, I think, um, but I don't have too much experience with penile anatomy. Um, maybe I lack interest. I'm like <laughs> a male doctor, not paying attention to the clitoris, except the other way around. But you're also not performing surgery on people. <laughs> so Exactly. So yeah, so we both have dorsal nerves. And the one thing is a lot of people don't understand what nerves are. So I've explained it a couple times. Basically, nerves are bundles of axons. Basically, every neuron has, well, every neuron has nerve endings that it leads to. And as far as sensory neurons of the clitoris, they have nerve endings that end in the skin of the clitoris. And they have an axon that travels in a nerve. And that's how it gets, you know, from your spinal cord to your clitoris. You know, it has to get there. So, and so they're all, so all the axons are bundled together in a nerve. They, that's how signals get sent from the nerve endings to your spinal cord. And then they get passed on to a different nerve that takes it from your spinal cord to your brain. And so if you damage the nerve, you cut off that signal. And so in terms of damaging the nerve, so in your case, you know, you had um, the clitoral hood removed. Is that right? Uh, clitoral hood reduction was done without my consent, which is crazy. And I've heard of this happening to other women as well. And it's just sort of bizarre because it's like these surgeons are just like, oh, it's all just that skin down there. It's all the same thing. It's like, no, it's not. The clitoral hood is literally the skin of the clitoris. And so you can actually damage the clitoris in a clitoral hood reduction. So basically the nerves travel very superficially. They're pretty much right under the skin of the clitoral hood. And this is what goes misunderstood. And you can see experts in female genital cosmetic surgery describing this incorrectly online. You can see them on real self reassuring patients. Oh no, don't worry about it. Clitoral nerve damage can't happen because those nerves are quote unquote, very deep, but they are not, they're not very deep. So that's the fundamental thing that's happening. And so for people who are getting labiaplasties, they're getting parts of their labia minora, the inner lips removed. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the danger, especially to sexual function of removing parts of our labia? So the labia minora are sexually sensitive tissue actively involved in female sexual response. I don't know as much about them as the clitoris. However, they have the same types of nerve endings as the clitoris. They engorge with arousal. 
They tend to be sensitive in most women. And in my opinion, they also mechanically facilitate clitoral stimulation. So I'm sure you've heard of Masters and Johnson, right? They were like pioneering sex researchers and they made that show on Showtime called Masters of Sex about them. I've never seen that. I mean, I'm Aussie though, so I'm I'm sure my US listeners will have heard. (laughs) So their whole theory for how women had orgasms during penetration was by the labia minora basically getting pulled a little bit during Mm -hmm. penetration and then pulling on the frenulum in the clitoral hood, which would sort of basically make it make the clitoris jack itself off. That's the best way I know how to explain it. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> yeah. But and I really think that that mechanism it exists, but it hasn't really been explored, even though in my opinion it's kind of obvious. So I mm-hmm. think the labia minora play a mechanical role as well in addition to themselves being sensitive. Um, they also protect the vestibule um, and the vagina. So mm-hmm. You know, TMI, but those of us who have had too much labia minora removed, we, you know, we have our vestibules too exposed and it, it can be kind of annoying. You know, like this one woman yesterday was telling me she feels like she's like spread open all the time. And I've gotten to the point where I just ignore it. Or I've just accepted it. But I'm like, yeah, this is this is super fucked up that we live like this, you know, and that doctors thought that this was appropriate. And one thing really crazy is that over the years, when I go to the doctor, like for an annual exam, no one ever says anything to me about it, you know, unless I bring it up. But no one is ever like, hey, are you okay? It's sort of bizarre because in my opinion, when this happens to women, you know, if doctors see a patient who's had their labia minor completely removed, they should say, hey, like, are you okay? What's the appropriate response, in my opinion? But there's just so much ignorance around vulvas. The biggest reason why labiaplasty is dangerous is because there are no training standards and because ignorance of anatomy is so pervasive among surgeons. And so in terms of, you know, someone who is considering getting labiaplasty or has heard of it and thinks, oh, I should get that, it's most often because... Uh, they are feeling that their labia minora are too long. Now, is this a thing that they can be too long? Um, I know that some people actually uh, feel uncomfortable physically, but I know, I think from what I understand, more often than not, the discomfort is with just this assumption that I should be all tucked in and this difference between what people say is an innie versus an outie and more of that cosmetic ideal. Yeah, so I think there was one study that showed only 13% of women seeking labiaplasty are doing so for physical reasons. Mm -hmm. However, some women really do have discomfort, you know, their labia minora pull on things and may even cause pain. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it really bothers them, but that does not mean that they deserve to be butchered. (laughs) So that's that's one reason why I'm not against these procedures, because some women actually need them. Yeah. And I don't want to get in the way of those women having a solution that helps them, you know, be happier in their lives and more comfortable. Um, So my main critique is of the lack of training standards, the lack of informed consent and the ignorance among surgeons. It's also important to recognize, at least here in the U.S., when these procedures go wrong, 
there is no recourse. So, you know, people always ask me if I sued and I didn't because I didn't really understand what had been done. I didn't understand that what had been done was negligent and I blamed myself. But I think, you know, back then it probably would have been, it would have been harder to win back then than it is now. And now when I talk to women who are trying to find a lawyer to represent them, they can't. So they're getting turned away. And one thing to recognize is just how traumatic it is to go to a law firm and say, hey, like this terrible thing happened to me. And to have that law firm say, hey, like we can't, this is too hard to litigate. Because, because that's just sort of devastating. I mean, it's like going to the police after you've been raped and having them be like, oh, we can't do anything about it. Because it's so invalidating to the trauma that you've suffered. So I feel like one thing that goes on is there's only so much of this that women can take. And so they go, you know, they they try to contact lawyers and I think they give up after a while. Yeah. Um, and so I try to like support people in doing this, but I don't know of a single case that is litigated successfully. Um, there's one woman who filed her lawsuit, I think three years ago. Um, and her case I thought would definitely win because she was harmed in a repair after a sexual assault. Wow. Um, and so, you know, in a case like that, the jury would be a lot more sympathetic than in a cosmetic case, which is sad, but that's the way it works. Yeah. And she still hasn't gone to court and oh. she might lose. Yeah. So, so like I was just recently talking to this 23 year old who had her labium menorah completely removed. And she said she went to an all-female law firm and they said, you know, they couldn't represent her. And one of the things that she mentioned is that the harm would be too hard to prove. Wow. And it's so crazy because if you had your breasts entirely removed and a breast reduction, that would be an easy case. Any yeah. lawyer would take that in a heartbeat. And so I called my dad and I talked to my dad. So my dad's a plastic surgeon. And he said, yeah, the problem is these plaintiff's attorneys, they're lazy and they want easy cases and they don't want to deal with anything that's taboo. Yeah. So, you know, dealing with a botched breast reduction, that's much easier yeah. than a botched labiaplasty. And so I think basically there are a lot of issues that are sort of enabling a very low standard of care. It's hard because nobody is trying to cause any harm, but... That's what what's happening because there are no consequences. Yeah. So there are no consequences for the professional medical organizations who are neglecting their duties to ensure a reasonable standard of care. Yeah. So like, you know, for example, uh, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons has their in-service exam, which is one way that they ensure the plastic surgeons know what they're doing. And it's taken by residents. And it's also taken by practicing plastic surgeons as a way to get continuing medical education credits. So basically my dad takes the in-service exam. And so he told me that as of 2021, there's still, or maybe 2020, the last time he took it, there was nothing about vulvar anatomy or female genital cosmetic surgery on the in-service exam. And that's supposed to cover everything that they need to know. And so things like that, it, it's just a way in which systemic negligence is, it's institutionalized, you know, and 
so you think, how can that be? Like, that's not right. Um, how can they do that? Well, there's no, it, they're not liable for not ensuring that plastic surgeons are trained to do what we think they're trained to do. So that's the crazy thing. Yeah, definitely. It should be just part of the curriculum, like embedded in uh, in their basic training, um, not like an optional extra that they have to seek out. So one of the biggest victories I've gotten is the course of the dorsal nerves in the clitoris is now included in board certification for OBGYNs, or it's included in their maintenance of certification, which is how practicing OBGYNs stay board certified. But it's optional. So basically, it's a big victory, but it's optional learning for them. And so now, like if you're an OBGYN, you have to get a certain number of maintenance of certification credits. Mm -hmm. And they have made it so that if you read a study of the dorsal nerves of the clitoris, which I convinced some OBGYNs to do, then they get double the maintenance of certification credits. They have to read it and they have to answer questions. Yeah. And that's, well, they don't have to, it's optional. Yeah. It is required for urogynecologists, which, so urogynecology is a subspecialty of OBGYN and they have made it required for them, but not for general OBGYNs, which is sort of annoying because it's like, oh, come on. Why can't you just make it so OBGYNs have to know about the clitoris? Like, this isn't complicated. Like, this is pretty basic. It does feel so basic. Like, if that is your specialty, like... You're, you're in gynecology. It just, it seems so bizarre. Like someone who like is a nose surgeon, I don't know the technical term, but like not knowing about certain like membranes of the nostrils. Like it seems just so ridiculous that it's not included. I've heard that you've got a petition going as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about your petition? Oh yeah. So I started that in December and in December it got a bunch of signatures. It really took off. Um, it was a petition to get the nerves in the clitoris taught to OBGYNs. Or basically, it's a petition to the Council on Graduate Medical Education in Obstetrics and Gynecology to specify that the nerves in the clitoris be taught. And the reason they need to specify it is because historically, it hasn't been getting included, it hasn't been getting taught. So... Until 2019, every time OBGYNs went to cover the nerve supply of the vulva, they didn't cover the nerves in the clitoris. And it's really nuts. So you can't just say, hey, teach the nerve supply of the vulva and expect nerves in the clitoris to be taught because that's never happened. And so currently, all they do is specify that the nerve supply to the vulva should be taught. And my opinion is that's not enough because that's not going to make it get taught. The Council on Graduate Education and Obstetrics and Gynecology is basically the entity with with the most authority to dictate what the standard OBGYN curriculum is. So if I can just get them to do this, it will solve the problem at scale everywhere. You know, it will (laughs) dictate what OBGYNs have to learn in every residency program across the country. And it's so simple and they won't do it. So my petition, I started my petition after I got an email that said this specific anatomy doesn't fit in the curriculum. 
And so I created the petition and I got a phone call with, I think the chair and education chair of Creog. And so it was me and the two of them on the phone. And that was like right around when I got COVID. So I keep going back to it and thinking like, oh, I wasn't on my game. Like I didn't handle that well. I didn't negotiate properly. Right. One problem was I think I was trying to be really nice because I've been criticized for being too aggressive. And so I tried to take a different approach and I tried to just, you know, get them to understand, hey, there's a problem with ignorance of this anatomy among OBGYNs. And they were telling me, hey, we're not going to specify that that gets taught because it's, you know, they explained to me that they don't specify that level of detail in their core curriculum. Mm-hmm. And and they said, of course, uh, the innervation of the clitoris would be included in nerve supply of the vulva. And I said, well, the problem is it's not, of course, because it never was. And yeah. so I said, you know, it was only even included in your textbooks as of 2019. So how can you expect it's getting taught regularly? Yeah. You know, and so then they said that I should send them a list of the textbooks that I had gotten updated. And um, I hoped that that would sort of open up a dialogue and that that dialogue would continue. However, after I got off the phone, I never heard from them again. And so I really regretted how I handled that situation because I think I could have been pushier, but I was trying to not be too pushy. And ultimately... You know, I, I did not succeed. However, you know, there's still an opportunity for them to change their core curriculum. I did check with the American Urological Association. They do dictate that the nerves in the penis be taught to urologists. So why not? Why can't, <laughs> why can't ACOG do the same thing? Basically, CREOG is under ACOG. It's like so the so ACOG is American College of OBGYNs and CREOG is their council on graduate education in OBGYN. And all they have to do is add a line. You know what I mean? Like it's this it's such a small thing. I'd be so interested to, um, and I might do this after our interview to see what um, systems are at play in in Australia or in other countries in terms of labiaplasty and the popularity of it, um, the regulation of it. Obviously, I don't think I'm going to be able to do as deep <laughs> research um, as you've done in the states, but it would be really interesting to sort of see a little bit more about the the rise of it here as well. Yeah, so because there's so much lack of transparency, you kind of have to judge what doctors know and don't know just based on the literature. Mm. At least that's been my approach because it's so hard to get a good answer to what they're being taught. Mm -hmm. But you can see what they know based on what they publish. And so when you see that anatomy is missing, it's a pretty clear indication that they're not getting taught that anatomy. The other thing that's sort of comical is you'll see the clitoris get mislabeled. So like one thing that's really funny that happens is there are some urogynecologists that have published multiple papers where they have labeled the clitoral body as the glands. No. In major medical journals. (laughs) 
So, oh my gosh, that's so, so medical journal editors have had to sign off on this. And these wow. doctors had to publish it to begin with. And it's just so ridiculous. Like I made this, like basically I took a photo or I took an illustration of a penis and I labeled the shaft, the glands as a joke. And I was trying to troll the chief editor of the Journal of Sexual Medicine. <laughs> he didn't respond. Yeah. But I was like, hey, would you publish this too? <laughs> I mean, I think it's hilarious, but he probably doesn't. Wow. I emailed him and he said, <laughs> he said the, I think he said the professional thing to do is to write a letter to the editor. And I say, well, if I do that, that's work for me. So, you know, I'm over here doing free work and I'm like, is this actually going to make a difference? So I asked him like, hey, what are you going to do if I write a letter to the yeah. editor? And he said, well, these errors probably aren't serious enough to warrant a retraction or re-review. So I'm like, so then what's the point? Like, yeah. I mean, he, wow. Not serious enough. That's bonkers. Let's just mislabel, like, let's mislabel the arm a hand. That's how ridiculous that is. It's like, so I have to laugh. And sometimes, sometimes I might be a little bit of an asshole, but it's like, doctors are supposed to be smart. Okay. And so when you see yeah. really smart people doing really dumb things, it's kind of hard <laughs> to be super understanding about it because they're better than that. Yeah. And mm. it also means there's something going on where psychological discomfort, it seems to cause people to act dumb. It's like they, they're unable to apply a normal level of cognitive ability to this particular topic. I've made jokes that the word clitoris must cause doctor's brains to turn to mush that's kind of a, a rude thing to say <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh this has been so so fascinating to learn about um I'm so behind your mission I think it's incredible the work that you've done so far and continue to do so thank you so much for sharing more about this topic this issue um I'd be very interested to see what the study in the textbooks are like in other countries. But for my US audience, I think this is very, very important for you to know as well. I think a lot of things obviously do come out of the US as well. Um, so thank you so much for sharing today. Appreciate it. So I just want to say, so I have talked to doctors internationally and there actually is a textbook that I know is very commonly used in the UK that I haven't checked yet. However, okay. a lot of the textbooks that are used in the U.S. are also used elsewhere. I'm sorry. Also, so Gray's Anatomy comes out of the United Kingdom. And Moore yeah. and Grant come out of Canada. I've gotten Moore and Grant to agree to changes. I was unsuccessful with Gray's. I got them to cite a study of the dorsal nerves of the clitoris, but they didn't cover the anatomy. So it's really bizarre. Um, hmm. but basically, I mean, this is an international issue. And so like when I've checked medical journals, it's not in international medical journals hmm. either. Uh, yeah. So like the British journal of OBGYN has never published the nerves and the clitoris, at least last I checked. I know, you know, there's Dr. Helen O'Connell who has made quite a name for herself 
she is in Australia and she has published a few studies of the clitoris and she got the media's attention by claiming she discovered parts of the clitoris. Those parts are shown in anatomy textbooks, you know, in the 80s, in the 70s, before she discovered them in 1998. So basically she didn't really discover anything, but she's very well known for having published studies of the clitoris. Uh, She did dissect the dorsal nerves and she did comment on how large they were in her study she published in 1998. She did not photograph them. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically she also has talked about how clitoral anatomy isn't adequately covered and she is in Australia. So those same issues are impacting doctors in Australia. There was also a Guardian article. Um, it was basically, I guess, the Guardian Australia. Um, and they talked about the Royal College Ranscog. It's the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They were quoted in this article in the Guardian. And there were some doctors in Australia, I think OBGYNs, and also Dr. Helen O'Connell, who is a urologist, they were quoted in this article discussing how basically doctors in Australia and New Zealand are not getting taught adequate clitoral anatomy either. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think as suspected, (laughs) it's, uh, it's a worldwide thing. And they also talked about a lack of interest. So that's one thing that's really bizarre is Mm -hmm. it it's like a topic that makes everyone uncomfortable which I guess makes sense because I used to be afraid to talk about it but for me it was always scary because it was connected to a trauma and I was so afraid to discuss what happened to me and it's still kind of awkward to like talk about my vulva on the internet (laughs) It's, it's ridiculous and but I remember even just talking about vulvas generally used to be embarrassing but now I'm like hey guess what I have a clitoris trophy you know I'm like yeah. really yeah proud of yeah same I've got a clitoris around my neck so I'm like <laughs> let's talk about it <laughs> oh yeah I got a clitoris necklace and clitoris earrings here's me by Clito Clito I don't know if you've seen her clitorises they're really pretty yeah yeah that's so cool actually I wanted to ask you where you got your clitoris model from because that's epic Oh, yeah. So that is from Stephanie Grubel. Uh, I think mm-hmm. she's in Austria. It's funny how I really have connected with people all over the world. So cool. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the Sensuality Academy podcast. Okay. This honestly has been such an eye-opening, fascinating conversation. Uh, one that I think a lot of my listeners maybe have never heard about. I know a lot of people haven't heard of what labiaplasty is in general, let alone just the lack of um, awareness and and information about the clitoral anatomy in medical literature so thank you so much for joining us thank you for your work it's incredibly impressive and I wish you all the best with continuing to to change medical gynecological history thank you (laughs) thank you so much before you head off to listen to another episode I want to tell you about my six-week course called embodied I have had so many people asking me to teach more online because you're all missing out on my in-person workshops. So I've got you. 
Embodied is an online experience which will help you to drop into your most sensual self. Through video lessons, curated exercises, workbooks and guided meditations, along with weekly live group coaching sessions with me, we'll explore how to truly feel embodied from the inside out. Each week, we'll dive into a new topic to help you connect deeper with yourself, your pleasure and your loved ones. We'll explore themes such as self-inquiry and deconditioning, the energetics of feminine and masculine polarity, menstrual cycle awareness, self-intimacy and self-pleasure, sex and orgasm, of course, and relationships and communication. This course is an intensive exploration in my favorite topics to teach and to help you unlock your inner sensualista. Waitlist students will receive bonus content plus priority enrollment. To get yourself on the waitlist, head to thesensualityacademy.com slash embodied hyphen waitlist or simply find the link in the episode description and show notes. I cannot wait for you to join me. Let's get embodied.